Second Samuel chapter nine this morning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up there. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and take took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It's the parable of the good Samaritan. Some of you are are frantically looking through second Samuel chapter nine, trying to find this right now, wondering what in the world is going on. What kind of pastors do we have here that they can't figure out what the gospel of Luke is versus second Samuel chapter nine. But the reason I start with 2 Samuel chapter 9 is because, or with, with Luke chapter 10 and the parable of the Good Samaritan is because I, I think there's a lot of parallels between the parable of the Good Samaritan and what we find with David and his interaction with Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Because the parable of the Good Samaritan and our text this morning is all about extraordinary generosity. It's all about a, a love that goes above and beyond the expectations that anyone would have, the obligations that anyone should feel towards another person. Second Samuel chapter nine is all based on and founded upon the relationship of David and Jonathan. And so to set the stage for what we're gonna read, I want us to be in first Samuel chapter 20 and I'll read it for you. You can stay there in second Samuel chapter nine, but first Samuel chapter 20 this is right before David goes on the run. This is right before David begins to flee from Saul's persecution of him. When he and Jonathan are having that meeting together in the field and Jonathan says, hey, look, if, if it turns out that my dad is really after you to kill you, I'll let you know, I'll warn you about that. And David says, great. And Jonathan goes to find out. And, but before he leaves, he says this to him in verse 14 to David. He says, if I am still alive, because Jonathan knows what God is gonna do. He knows that God is is going to set up David to be the the next king of Israel, that David is God's chosen man. And so Jonathan is speaking with David and he says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that chesed love of God. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. In other words, from my descendants, from the generations that come after me. Be faithful to your covenant with me, even with them, is what Jonathan's asking. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with David and with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan and David, Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. And then in verse 42 of chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, we read this. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. 
And so what we have there is this covenant, this relationship, this agreement, this commitment that's made between David and Jonathan. And not just between the two of them, but between their offspring, between their houses. In other words, between the the descendants that would come from them. That this relationship was going to go beyond just these two men, but it was also going to apply to their families. And so what we find then as we come to first Samuel or second Samuel chapter nine, rather, is David in a moment where God had cut off all of his enemies, as Jonathan had told him he would do. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse one, the Lord gave him rest from all the enemies around him. Second Samuel chapter eight, we covered last time how God provided all that. What we find is, is David's in that moment where he doesn't have a battle to fight. And perhaps he has this moment of reflection and he's thinking back on his life and thinking back on his relationship with his dear friend, Jonathan, and this covenant comes to mind. And so he wonders to himself, is there anyone of Saul's household or of Jonathan's household to whom I can show kindness, to whom I can extend this commitment and fulfill this commitment and extend loyalty to Jonathan uh, as a result of the, the promise that I made to him? And so in verse nine, that's exactly what he says. And then he calls for somebody to, to answer that question. He calls for this man, Ziba. There was a servant at the house of Saul, verse two, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. So here's this son of Jonathan. And maybe one of the questions that we have initially is, well, why didn't David know about one of Jonathan's sons? If he was that close to Jonathan, why was he ignorant of, of Mephibosheth in the first place? Why did he need this guy, Ziba, who was a former servant of Saul, to come in and tell him about Mephibosheth? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Number one is the location of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is way up here in Lodabar. And what do you notice? Where is Lodabar located in relation to the Jordan River. It's on the east side, right? It's on the the wrong side of the Jordan River when it comes to the promised land. Mephibosheth had located himself, chosen to reside, much as Ishbosheth had in his kingdom that he had for a a time being, outside of God's promised land. He's out in the the wilderness across the Jordan River from the, the area and land of Israel. So it's not like Mephibosheth was in David's backyard in Jerusalem, just hanging out, and David didn't know about him. I think the second reason why David didn't know about Mephibosheth is Mephibosheth wasn't, uh, wasn't fully healthy. He was crippled. He was lame in his feet. And so he would have uh, endured a, a stigma about him in that culture and in that society. Not only that, he was probably destitute because he couldn't really work for his, his living. He couldn't work for his food. And he didn't have anyone else in his circles that he could rely on. He didn't really have any other family left that could support him and take care of him. And so I think Mephibosheth is, is out in the wilderness, fending for himself, hiding from, from society and from culture. And then, I mean, I think the, the third reason is because he didn't know how David was going to respond to him. The, the, the MO of a conquering king during those times was they would go in and they would kill, they would slaughter every male descendant of the, the king that had been defeated. And so as David stepped into the throne, and then you've, you've not only got Saul to think about, but then you've got Ishbosheth, Saul's son, to think about as well. And David had seen the downfall of both of them. And now David was the new king. In Mephibosheth's mind, he's thinking to himself, you know what? 
he's probably going to kill me. And so Mephibosheth is as far away from David as he can possibly get, I think, at this point. But Ziba, the servant of Saul, this former servant of Saul's house, perhaps even the, the current caretaker of Saul's property, he comes in before David and David says to him, you know what, is there anyone of the house of Saul to whom I can fulfill this covenant that I made with Jonathan? This covenant to show the steadfast love of the Lord to him. That, I, that he may not die and, and not to cut off that steadfast love, not only from him, but also from his house. Notice that word that David uses back in chapter nine, verse three. He says, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? That word kindness of God, phrase kindness of God is also translated into other texts like first Samuel chapter 20, the covenant between Jonathan and David as the steadfast love of God. And so it's worth noting, and I think it's significant here, that David lifts the same phrase that Jonathan uses twice in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 and 15 with him. And he uses it here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Jonathan says to David, David, make sure that you continue to show the steadfast love of the Lord to me and my household. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, David is saying, is there anyone of the household of Jonathan that I may show the steadfast love of the Lord to? It's that word hesed love in the Hebrew. It's the, the loyalty, it's the favor, it's the mercy of God. We find it used in Exodus chapter 15, verse 13, in relation to our redemption. There it says, you, God, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And so God redeems because of his steadfast love, but he also forgives because of his steadfast love. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 19, he says, please pardon the iniquity, the sins of this people, according to what? The greatness of your steadfast love. This loyal love, this merciful love. And then in Deuteronomy 7, 9, it's part of his covenant faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7, 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And so it's a, a love that's unique amongst followers of God. It's a love that is a love marked by extraordinary and extravagant kindness. It's a love that Jonathan had called on David to show to him and his household. And it's a love that David now was wanting to fulfill that, that promise that he had made to Jonathan. And so he says, is there anyone, anyone at all from the house of Jonathan that I might show the steadfast love, the, the kindness of God to him? And Ziba says, yes, there's this son named Mephibosheth. And David goes and gathers Mephibosheth in verse five. Then the king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Again, he's thinking he's a dead man at this point. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear for I will show you kindness. There's the same word again. Why? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. David is extraordinarily kind to this man. And he's extraordinarily kind to this man because of his fierce loyalty to Jonathan. He had promised something to Jonathan. He had given Jonathan his word and he was going to keep his word no matter the cost. And as men of God, we need to also be sure that we are being generous in keeping our commitments. You and I, it's point number one this morning, need to be generous in keeping our commitments. 
Again, that's what this whole text is about, is this generous love, this steadfast love. This love that goes above and beyond expectations. And it starts with understanding the, the commitments, the, the promises that we've made. We live in a world, in a culture, in a society where getting by is good enough. The, the mantra in so many of our circles today is work smarter, not harder, right? We're looking for the easy way out. We're looking for the shortcut. We're looking for, okay, what's the least I can do to fulfill my commitments? That's not what David's doing in this text. Nobody would have blamed David had David never inquired about the existence of Mephibosheth. Nobody would have looked at David and said, well, David, you're not being faithful to your relationship with Jonathan. But that's not what David was all about. David was saying, no, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to be a man of my word. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to keep this commitment, this promise that I've made. And so he goes out of his own way, above and beyond, and he asks and he seeks out this man Mephibosheth. And he gathers Mephibosheth and he brings him into Jerusalem. And we'll talk about all the blessings that he gives him in just a moment. But he doesn't just bring him into Jerusalem and say, well, here, take the shack down the road. Or he doesn't send the Habitat for Humanity out to Lodabar, right, to build him a, a shack out in the desert across the Jordan River. David is extravagant in his love for Mephibosheth because of his commitment to Jonathan. And so he's being generous in keeping and being loyal and being faithful to that promise that he had made. I wonder what are the areas that we need to increase our generosity and our faithfulness in keeping the commitments that we've made. Here's some areas to think through. Number one is, is church. Number one is church. We say here that we value highly committed participants. And to be a highly committed participant, we talk about three things. We talk about attending, connecting, and serving. And so if you consider yourself, yes, I'm, I would count myself among those who are highly committed participants at Compass Bible Church. I want to ask you how you're doing in those commitments that you've made to be faithful in attending. I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, especially more so even than Tuesday nights. Don't tell them that, right? Because you guys are faithful to show up early on, on Wednesday mornings. And today you got paid off because you got burritos this morning, right? But you guys are, are up early and, and you're, you're not just here on the weekends. You're here as well on, at, at men's Bible study. And I know a lot of you are involved in Encompass Small Groups. That's wonderful. Stay faithful to those commitments. Let me encourage you, don't, don't fall by the wayside as the semester goes on. You're, you're here not, not for me, but you're here for the men that are in your small group to encourage them, to pray for them, to be faithful, to be involved in their lives. You've committed to them to say, hey, I'm here and I'm gonna be involved with you. So stay faithful in attending. Stay faithful in connecting. Faithful in praying for one another. Faithful not just in, in showing up, but faithful to develop those relationships, to cultivate those friendships with those men in your small group as well. And then faithful in serving. Hopefully all of you are serving in some capacity. We understand that when God saves us and dwells us with the Holy Spirit, he equips us, he gifts us to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. Every believer has something to bring to the table in the body of Christ. And so I, I would encourage you, be faithful in serving. Find an area that you can plug in, get connected, and be faithful to that ministry. Another area where we can increase our generosity and our faithfulness is our marriages. If you're married, how are you doing in the vows that you've made to your spouse? Are you, again, are you looking for how little can I do to be considered a, a godly husband? Or are you looking to say, how can I go above and beyond to be a faithful husband, to be a, a loving husband, to fulfill the vows that I made before 
her, before the pastor that married us, before the people that were in the presence, but more importantly, before God, how can I be faithful to be over and above committed to fulfilling those promises that I made, those vows that I made? How about as parents or grandparents, those roles that God has put you in there? Are you being faithful in the commitment that you have as being a godly father or a godly grandfather? Or in the workplace as an employee or an employer? As an employee, have you, are you being faithful to the commitments that you've made to your employer? Are you again looking for just the, the, the minimum amount you can do to make sure that you get your Christmas bonus and your paychecks keep coming in? Or are you saying, no, I'm going to be a, a faithful representative of my relationship with Christ. I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm going to be the, the best employee that I possibly can be because I want Christ to be exalted by the way that I labor, by the way that I work, by the way that I show myself to be faithful to the promises that I made when I agreed to work in this environment. If you're an employer, are you being faithful to those under your care, under your charge? Your commitments to them, are you treating them in a, in a godly way? Are you being fair with them? Are you being generous with them? How about in your daily Bible reading? Commitments there. Are you being generous in keeping your commitment? The, the daily Bible reading, I think every one of us as pastors to a man would say, uh, we're not just saying, hey, hit that and stop. We would love for you to, to be consistent with the DBR, and then we would say, okay, let's Let's go above and beyond. Let's take a, another chunk. Let's add a proverb a day. Let's add scripture memory to that. Let's add more intake to that. Listen to, to more sermons as you're driving around. Whatever it is, increase your intake of the word of God. Don't just say, hey, I'm doing the DBR. I'm good. We would say, no, let's keep going in that. Let's overflow in generosity in the commitment that we're making to God to say, God, I want to devour. I want to feast on the word of God. If you're not in the daily Bible reading, maybe you started that and at some point you just got behind and you don't know, you're thinking, well, you know what? I'll start again in the new year. Don't wait until the new year. Jump in right now. Jump in right in the middle of Ezekiel with the measurements of the temple this morning. And that's okay. You'll be confused. I, I, that's all right. That's all right. But, but get back in the word now. Don't wait. Don't say, well, I'm going to resolve in the new year to do it. No, get a running start. Get back into the word right now. Be generous in your commitments that you've made. You know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church there. And he says, hey, you know what? As, as far as loving one another goes, you guys are doing a great job. He says, I don't, I don't really need to exhort you in that. But he doesn't just transition. He gives them a command regarding how they're doing. And what's that command? He says, you need to excel still more. I love that phrase from Paul. I love that phrase from Paul. Because it means that, that we can never say, hey, you know what? I've got that area of my Christian life covered, check, I'm good, I can put that on the back burner. There's always going to be room for us to excel still more in our walks with Christ. In these commitments that we've made to others, there's always going to be room for us to excel still more. Again, David, nobody would look at David and say, David, you failed in your relationship with Jonathan. But Jonathan, uh, or, but David was saying, you know what, I can excel still more in my loyalty to him. Let me figure out a way that I can be even better in keeping the commitment that I made to Jonathan. So that's exactly what he does. And we need to do that as well. Well, Mephibosheth is, is overwhelmed, as you can imagine. In verse 8, he paid homage to David and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And he's just pointing out the disparity in rank between David and himself. It's like when David was on the run from Saul and David referred to himself as a flea. 
Again, he's saying, you're the king of Israel. I'm a dead dog compared to who you are. And he's saying, what, what is going on? Why, why would you be so incredibly generous to me? Look at the rest of the blessings. Verse 9, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at King David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. That's kind, isn't it? When you've got a name like Mephibosheth, you're going to do your son one better, aren't you? I'm going to name you Micah, not Mephibosheth Jr. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So consider the blessings that David heaps upon this man. This man who was living in the wilderness, outside of the promised land, who was living away from the priesthood of God, away from the ark, away from the sacrificial system, who was excluded from the people of God. And now consider the blessings that David brings upon him. First he says, I'm going to give you land. To have land at that time would have given status, but then to have the land of the former king of Israel, to have the the land of Saul, all of the land of Saul, all of Saul's family estate, most likely the, the family estate of of Saul that was located in, in Gibeah, his former headquarters. David says, it's, it's yours. It's yours. This is not what you would expect from a, a king. This is not what you would, uh, a move that would have been normal. Again, the normal move from the king would have been to execute Mephibosheth on the spot. But David takes Mephibosheth from the wilderness outside of the promised land and, and gives him back all the land of his grandfather, Saul. But second, he, he gives him servants as well. He takes Ziba, this man who had referenced Mephibosheth in the first place. And Ziba was a man that was doing well for himself. Ziba had 15 sons. I've got five kids. I can't imagine having 15 kids. He had to have that big Nissan camel, right? That has like 20 rows in it. He had 15 sons and 20 servants. So Ziba's doing okay for himself. And David looks at Ziba and says, Ziba, you're going to work that land. You're going to till that land. All of your sons and all of your servants are now going to work for Mephibosheth. And so David gives Mephibosheth land and then he gives him the servants to be able to take care of the land and to be able to cultivate the land and to be able to bring in the produce. And just a a sidebar on Ziba. This is a man of humility. This is a man who, again, was was obviously doing pretty well for himself, a former servant of the the previous king of Israel, of King Saul. And David says to him, now Ziba, you're going to go and become a servant again of your master's grandson, this lame man who was living outside of the promised land. Ziba, you're going to go and work his land for him. And Ziba's response is wonderful. He says, all that my Lord, the king commands, your servant will do. But again, David, just his generosity, he gives to Mephibosheth, he gives him land, he gives him the servants and says, you're going to cultivate all of the land and you're going to bring the produce to him. But then he says, Mephibosheth is not going to need the produce because the third thing that David gives Mephibosheth is he gives him position, land, servants, and position. He says, he's going to eat at my table. Now, to eat at the king's table was not just to enjoy family dinner. It was to have a a status and a position that was uh, really unrivaled outside of the king himself in the kingdom. 
He was part of the king's inner circle. He had a seat at the table where decisions were made. And so Mephibosheth was now going to have a voice in the, the, the council of King David. In fact, the text says very clearly in verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at King David's table like, what? One of the king's sons. So David was not just giving him land, giving him servants and saying, okay, go have a nice life, Mephibosheth. He actually brings him in and embraces him and adopts him as one of his own sons. Seats him at the royal table, making sure he would never have a need again in his life and giving him a voice in the leadership of Israel. All of these things that David does for Mephibosheth, anyone else, any other culture, any other ruler would have looked at and said, that's insane. And they would have looked at that and said, David, that is incredibly risky. You're taking an offspring, somebody who has the right to the throne of, of Saul, the throne that you now sit on, and you're giving, him, uh, you're giving him power. You're giving him land. You're giving him prestige in the eyes of the people. And not only that, you're, you're giving him position and authority over the, the people of Israel. David, this is a risky move for you to show this much generosity, this much love to this man. But it was driven by, again, David's relationship with Jonathan. David was going to be fiercely loyal to his commitment, no matter the cost. It's point number two for us this morning. We need to be generous despite the risk. Be generous despite the risk. Be generous in that faithful love to other people, that loyalty, that steadfast love of God, despite the risk involved. Let's go back, if we can, to the parable of the Good Samaritan. The first two people that come upon the man who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead, what do they do? They pass by, but not just skirt around him. They don't just step over him. They cross the street to get away from him and cross by on the other side of the road. Why do they do that? Because they're afraid that what happened to this man could also happen to them. They're afraid that the robbers who mugged this man and robbed him and left him for dead, bleeding on the side of the road, could be lying in white, wait, waiting for somebody to come and, and help this man. And, and they could go out and take advantage of them as well and, and beat them and rob them. And so the priest and the Levite, who, again, the priest and the Levite, Jesus is careful in describing who these characters are in this story. They know the Old Testament law. They know the command to love your neighbor as yourself. They know what the, the Torah commanded them. And yet they look at the risk involved in loving the man who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead. And they say, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm not going to love him that much. And they pass by on the other side of the road. But then the Samaritan comes up. And I love that Jesus uses the Samaritan because all of his hearers would have cringed in disgust at hearing that this was a Samaritan. And the Samaritan comes up and he sees the man and he doesn't pass by. He sees the man and what overtakes him is his love for the man, his compassion for the man. A man that he didn't know, that he didn't have any former relationship with. Did this Samaritan understand the risk involved in stopping? Of course he did. And yet he stops and he cares for the man and he takes the time to bandage his wounds and clean them with the oil that he had and he puts him on his own donkey. He incurs a, a cost to himself even physically because now he can't ride on his animal anymore. This man who's wounded is now on his animal and he's walking him and leading him. And he goes to the inn 
He's even giving up and, and incurring the cost of his time and, and sacrificing his agenda. And he goes to the inn and he stops at the inn and he goes into the innkeeper and he says, take care of this man. Here's two full days wages to meet his needs. And then he says, and, and if you incur any costs above and beyond that, I will pay you back when I return tomorrow. Again, a risky move because innkeepers weren't the most honest people in that culture and that society. And so you see this extraordinary love modeled in the Good Samaritan, despite the risk involved. And in fact, he takes on great cost to himself in order to love this man well. And Jesus, at the end of this parable, what does he say? He says, who was the man who was the true neighbor to the, the man who was in need? And the Jews at that point are even themselves left to say, well, it was the Samaritan. The Samaritan who loved despite the risk, who was generous in steadfast love and in compassion despite the risk. So how are we doing in that area of our lives? Let's think through some specific areas that we can be generous despite the risk. First one is, it's the most obvious one, low-hanging fruit, right? Is, is the area of giving. Pastor Mike talks about sacrificial giving. How are we doing in that? There should be a, a, a tangible feeling when we give back to what the Lord is doing. We should also be generous despite the risk in our time. And honestly, I think this one's harder than in our giving. Because when we consider our time, our agenda, what our plans are, our free time, to be willing to be interrupted in that in order to love somebody else, we need to be willing to do that. To show that extraordinary love, that faithful love, to go out of our way when we can to set our agenda and our to-do list aside in order to help somebody else, to love somebody else. Hospitality. Be generous despite the risk in, in helping those who need help. In trust. Generous in our trust. Trust in, in opening up to other brothers in Christ, to, to share prayer requests even opening up to another brother in Christ and saying, hey, can you hold me accountable in an area? Opening up ourselves to say, hey, I'm here for you. I will hold you accountable. Being generous with trust when we've had our trust broken by somebody. To extend it to them when we feel like we don't have it left to give in order to, to seek reconciliation there. We need to be generous despite the risk in serving. We've talked about that already. Serving is not always going to be convenient. We're not always going to be doing the thing that we want to do. We're not always going to be doing the thing that we feel equipped to do. But we need to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to step out and I'm going to give myself to this, even though it's going to involve personal cost to me, even though it's going to be something that's maybe a little bit risky. It's going to put me in a vulnerable situation because I don't know exactly what I'm doing. But I'm going to trust that the Lord will provide what I need. I need to be generous despite the risk in praying for each other praying for ourselves. How, how is praying risky? Well, how about this prayer? God, I want your will to be done in my life, not mine. That's a risky prayer to pray. Praying for others, praying for their good. Be generous despite the risk in discipling as well. Pursuing those relationships with other brothers in Christ, giving ourselves, loving somebody else enough to say, hey, you know what? I care so much about you. I I care about your holiness. I care about your relationship with Christ. And I want to walk with you in that. 
there are going to be moments in, in your life where you give yourself to that degree and that extent to somebody else only to see them disappoint you, only to see them let you down. But it's, it's on us to continue to pursue that, to continue to pursue those relationships, those discipleship relationships. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 1 John three sixteen through 18, similar concept. 1 John three sixteen through 18, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You know, David and Mephibosheth, David doesn't send a messenger up to Mephibosheth across the Jordan and say, hey, you know what? I loved your dad so much. I pray that you're doing well. Drop me a line sometime. Be warm and filled. Now, David loved in word, in talk, but also in deed and in truth. Generosity is so often inconvenient. And it's often also going to involve risk or cost on our part, but we need to be generous despite that. Well, it's been hinted at already and implied in our text, but I want to state it more explicitly now in our final point together this morning. And that is that the pattern of love and generosity that we see in King David is really a picture of the love and generosity that you and I have experienced from God through Christ. Second Samuel chapter 9 is the gospel for us. It really is. There's another parable in Luke chapter 15, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. And it's one that we're familiar with, but I want to fast forward to the point where the prodigal son is in the, the, the troughs with the pigs. He's squandered everything. And he's eating what the pigs eat. And he sits there and he thinks to himself, I mean, even my father's servants have something to eat, so I'm going to go back home because maybe he'll even take me back as a servant. The prodigal son at that point is thinking to himself, I have nothing to offer my dad. I've wasted my inheritance. I have nothing that he needs. And there's no reason he should take me back because basically what I told my dad is, dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance. I'm done with you. But maybe he'll let me feed his pigs instead of I sitting here and, and eating what these pigs are eating. And so he goes back. But as he goes back, we know the rest of the story. The prodigal Son's father is there looking for him, waiting for him, and runs out and greets him and embraces him and, and welcomes him home. And not only welcomes him home, but restores his position in his place. And he calls for the family ring, the ring that would have given him authority, position, the right to make decisions. And he puts it back on his son's finger and he, he puts the robe on and he celebrates his son's return home. That's a picture of even of, of David's love for Mephibosheth, but it's also right. It's a picture of God's love for us through Christ. And that's what we see here in this passage. We are Mephibosheth. We've got nothing to offer God. Romans 5, we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God when Christ died for us. I was talking to a guy yesterday on the phone who's 
uh, been in the Mormon church for decades and the Mormon church says do all that you can do and then grace will do the rest. That is a false gospel. We can do nothing. We don't move towards God and he then moves towards us. It's all an act of God. Our salvation is totally God wrought in us, including our faith that we have to believe in the work of Christ. And so we are Mephibosheth, estranged from God, estranged from the, the, the relationship of God and his people. When he comes after us, he is, is David's love for us, David's extravagant love for us. And in response, we need to love others as David himself loved. We need to be generous, point number three this morning, as God has been generous to us. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is eating with Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman, it says in the text, we can assume that she was most likely a, a prostitute, a, a harlot. She comes in and she kneels at the feet of Jesus and she's weeping and she's wetting his feet with her tears and she's wiping his feet with her hair and she's anointing his feet with perfume. And, and Simon, this Pharisee, looks at her in disgust and says to himself in his mind, if he only knew what type of woman this was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. And in a moment of his clear divinity, Jesus, knowing the thoughts running through his mind, turns to, to Simon. And actually, that's not right. He, he says in the text that he turns to the woman and says to Simon, this parable, he says a certain money lender had two debtors. One owned, owed 500 denarii, almost two years worth of, of wages, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet and with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. See, gentlemen, we need to be careful that we don't think that we have been forgiven little. We have been forgiven much. And the call on our lives is to love much in return to love our Savior. And as we love our Savior, His call on us is to love others. That our vertical love for God should express itself in that horizontal relationship that we have with others. Think again about Mephibosheth. He had nothing to offer David. He was not attractive. He wasn't one of the pretty people of Israel that David wanted adorning his table. And yet David sat him at his table provided no benefit to the king from a personal or a military standpoint. In fact, most people would look, looked at Mephibosheth and said, David, this man is a threat to you. He's your enemy. And yet David loved him. It's the gospel. And as David himself, I'm sure, had thought about where he had come. David himself, I'm sure, had thought about everything that God had done for him. That, that God had brought David from the sheepfold. 
from the runt of the litter, from the reject, even in his dad's eyes, you're not even worthy of being considered to be the next king of Israel. And God had brought him not only to be the king of Israel, but he had protected him through all of his running from Saul and all the gifts that God had given David. And now he was sitting in this palace, sitting in Jerusalem, looking around at at everything, having rest from all of his enemies. And he's pushing back from the table, so to speak. And he's thinking to himself, God, you've given me so much. How can I give to others? And he thinks about his relationship with Jonathan. And he thinks about that covenant that he made with Jonathan. And he says, how can I be generous to somebody in Jonathan's household? And he goes to Mephibosheth. And as God had been kind to David, David was kind to Mephibosheth as well. We need to be generous as God has been generous to us. What are some areas for us to do that? Number one, with our resources. We've already kind of hit on this one. Be generous with your resources. You are a steward of everything that God has given you. God has given you every gift you have in order to be a blessing to those around you. So use those things to bless other people, to be generous towards other people the way that God has been generous to you. Second area is in forgiveness. Forgiveness. You know, Jesus tells another parable similar to the one that he tells to Simon, but it's the parable of the wicked servant. The one servant owes an insurmountable debt to the king and he is called in before the king, I'm sure thinking to himself, I'm headed towards debtor's prison because I can't pay this debt. And yet the king forgives the entirety of his debt and the servant walking out from there goes and finds one of his fellow slaves and says to him, hey, you owe me a week's worth of money. You need to pay me back. And the servant says, well, I don't have it right now. And the servant who had been forgiven so much by the king looks at his fellow slave and says, you have to pay me now or you're going to be thrown into debtor's prison and has him thrown into prison. And the king receives word of it and calls him back in before him and and says to that servant who he had been forgiven so much, he says, you are a, a wicked and evil man because you have been forgiven so much and yet you for, refuse to forgive your fellow slave such a small infraction. You know, I go to that parable so often in marriage counseling. Because it, when, when we have those relationships where we have been sinned against, it's amazing to me how quickly, and I myself am, am right there, we can think to ourselves, my offense is so great, I can't forgive that person. We need to stop and consider how much we've been forgiven by God. The generosity of God in the cross, forgiving our sins, past, present, and future, against him, an offense that was infinite in measure, that he has dismissed and forgiven in Christ. No one has sinned against you. No one has sinned against you to the degree that you have sinned against God. And for you to say, I can't forgive someone else is for you to look at God and say, okay, God, you can forgive my sin, but this person's sin against me is greater than my sin against you. My offense is greater than your offense. My sense of justice and holiness is greater than your sense of justice and holiness. And that's nothing short of heresy. And so we need to be generous in forgiveness. Forgive as we have been forgiven. But finally this morning, we need to be generous in evangelism. Generous in evangelism. You are now an ambassador of the good news you have received. The gospel really is the gift that keeps on giving. At least that's God's design, right? The parable of the talents. You remember the man who was given the one talent? And he takes it and he he buries it. Man, we can't take the gospel that we've received and bury it. 
That's not what God wants us to do with it. He wants us to go out and, and to see a return on the investment he's made in us. How do we do that? We go out and we share the gospel with others. We're generous with the good news that we ourselves have received and we rejoice in. Pastor Rogers preached a message on this this weekend. If you haven't listened to it, go back online and listen. Great message, encouraging message to get out and get after the gospel. Get out and get after evangelism. This is our primary mission while we await the return of Christ. And we must be generous with the gospel that we have received. I mean, think about Mephibosheth for just a moment. Imagine being the guy that, that got to, imagine being King David. And, and being able to deliver this news to Mephibosheth. This life-changing, probably life-saving news. Hey, Mephibosheth, you, You've been living in abject poverty, not knowing if you're going to live to see another day. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you all of your grandfather's land in the state. It's all yours. And not only that, but, but here's a, a, a servant, an, an effective, a good, a strong servant, and all of his servants, and all of his, his family, they're going to work the land for you. And not only that, Mephibosheth, you know what? I'm, I'm bringing you in as one of my own. I'm adopting you as a son. You're going to sit at my table. Can you imagine just the, the overwhelming joy of being able to deliver that message to Mephibosheth? To see his reaction, to see his, his excitement about that? You all remember the, the show Extreme Maker, Makeover Home Edition? It started with, with them remodeling one room, and then by the end of the show, they were knocking down the whole house and just starting from scratch. But do you remember the reaction of the family when they came back and, and seeing the, their new place, and, and there were tears of joy at that? I, Mephibosheth must have just been just wrecked with joy over this. But man, here's the, the reality. We have a message even greater than the message that, God, that, that David delivered to Mephibosheth. We have the gospel. We have a message with eternal significance. Are we being generous with that message? Are we going out and proclaiming the good news that not that we're adopting anybody or that the, the king of this world is adopting anybody, anybody but the king of kings has made a way to adopt someone, to bring them into his family. We need to be generous with the gospel as God has been generous to us to, to make sure that we haven't just received the good news and buried it. This whole chapter is about this steadfast love that David wanted to show to Mephibosheth. And that steadfast love should be a hallmark of every single believer in Christ. She would be a mark of Christianity, something that naturally flows from us as those whose lives have been transformed just as much as Mephibosheth's life was transformed. So I want to encourage you this morning to be generous like David, to be generous with your faithfulness, your commitments, to be generous despite the risk involved, and to be generous as one who has received great generosity from God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage, this text, the clear picture it gives us of the gospel. We are, we were Mephibosheth, God, and yet you loved us so well. You brought us in, you embraced us, you forgave us of our sins. Lord, I even think of the blessings of Ephesians chapter 1. You sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance. Lord, we are co-heirs now with Christ. It really is this, this picture that we see in 2 Samuel 9. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you. We give you the glory for that because it was nothing that, 
was merited by us or that was attractive to, uh, about us or that would have benefited you that we can bring to the table, but it was all your grace given to us. Lord, thank you for that. Help us to now be men who are generous to others as you have been generous to us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.